0: Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello
1: and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today I want to talk about a issue that I think becomes especially compelling once you have written and published a book. And that is the need to get more help, to expand your team, to have, if you are used to being a solopreneur and handling everything on your own, making that transition into author where you're not just running your business, but now all of a sudden you're promoting a book, you're coordinating more speaking gigs, you're coordinating more media appearances, and the list goes on and on. Because of the growth that you'll experience as an author, you need to bring on competent people to help you sustain your success. And because of that, I have invited to be with us today, Sarah Hawley. Now, Sarah is a serial entrepreneur who has started and sold multiple companies for over seven figures. She is currently the founder and CEO of Bromotely, which connects conscious companies and professionals and helps match them into long-term working relationships. In 2021, her latest book, Conscious Leadership, A Journey from Ego to Heart, was released by Mandela Tree Press. She's also the co-founder of the League of Extraordinary Women, a community that supports women entrepreneurship. And Sarah is going to speak with us today about what it looks like to add a team member, what some of the benefits are, some of the potential challenges, and how to deal with them. So I hope that you will really listen with great intent and interest and enjoy. So Sarah, welcome to The Author's Corner. Hey, Robin, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you because, you know, when I think about, I mean, besides the fact that you're so much fun, but
0: (laughs) when I think about
1: the life of an author, right, I think a lot of people underestimate how much business there is to do inside of being an author. Like you earn that mantle, you get a book deal, you get the book published, you earn that mantle. But you can't just walk away from it and expect it to keep going. So there's all these added elements to your activities that you need to now absorb. And if you already own a business and already have a team, maybe there's a mechanism in place to support that. But if you don't, what do you do? (laughs) And so that's why I got so inspired when we first chatted to invite you here to be with us today. But I guess before we get to what do you do, tell us a little bit about how did you decide, like what led you to found
2: remotely? Oh, it's such a fun story. And I think many will relate to parts of it. I became an entrepreneur in around 2009, early 2010, and freedom is one of my highest values. So of course, becoming an entrepreneur and being able to be in charge of myself and my own time and all of that was very in alignment. But fast forward a couple of years down the track and I feel like I don't have anywhere near as much freedom as I wanted. Like to some degree I do and it's nice to know that I'm making my own money and, you know, I am the one making the decisions, but really I was like working long hours in an office, you know, just showing up for really long days And got to a point where I was like, I love to travel so much. Like that's part of freedom for me is to be out in the world and to be experiencing everything that this wonderful planet has to offer. And I wasn't able to do that as much. And so in 2014, I'd had enough and I was like, I'm ready to get back out in the world. I want to move to the US. I want to live in other parts of the world. I don't want to be stuck here because I have a business. And so I decided to turn my companies remote and I had a couple of businesses at that time. And back then it was very different being remote. It wasn't normal. I mean, there were freelancers and there were some people maybe working as consultants on their own remotely, but businesses and teams, it wasn't anywhere near what it is today. But really going into remote work and turning my company's remote fully flexible global was the key that unlocked the door for me to becoming a much better leader to having a much happier higher performing team and improved culture just really unlocked the door to a lot of happiness and well-being both for myself and for my team so it was really like a magical experience for me and I was able to move to the US, which is where I live now in 2016 and kept growing my companies. And I ended up growing and selling three businesses along the way. So you know, proper legit businesses with teams of like 10 to 20 people. They weren't huge, but they were really successful financial planning businesses that I was able to grow to a point and sell. And in 2018, I decided I was ready to get out of finance and ready to do something different as an entrepreneur. And along the way, I had formed a small global recruitment company with three other co-founders who also had remote businesses because there was no global remote recruitment company back then. So we just made our own little company that would do all of our recruiting for our companies. And we had a few clients, but it was a very small business. And none of those guys were very interested in that business. So over the years, I bought them out. And by the end of 2018, I was left holding the company. And so having sold my final financial planning business, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go into this remote work thing and see what it's all about. I just felt really called to pursue it, as a business and as a career and kind of really dive into it and see where I could take it because I was so passionate about it. Like it literally transformed my life in so many ways. And so about halfway through 2019, I really understood that what we could do with turning the service aspect of our business into a technology platform and started working on basically ideating what has now become remotely So the fun, most fun part about the story is we raised a really small pre seed round and closed that on March 13th last year, which was the Friday before we went into lockdown.
1: At was the start just, of this I know that. <laughs> that was the day my son was flying home from Italy. He was on a full yep. in Italy and that was the last possible day he could get out. So he stayed as long yep. as
2: And then it came home. Yeah, Yeah, and it was it was like the day that I decided I wasn't going back to Australia and I was going to stay here in the US. And that was a really big moment for me, realizing that this has certainly become my home side story. Um, but yeah, we really quickly in the next month or two realized that wow, the entire world just experienced remote work. Like this is no longer a 10-year time horizon. I knew it had to be coming. I'm getting goosebumps all over because I'm imagining like. You couldn't have timed it like,
1: better. Oh, it in terms of, I mean, I've actually been a, an advocate of remote work for many, many years as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if for nothing else, it's got to be better for the carbon footprint. You know, if, if why are we driving to and from work every day when so much? Yeah. More, and I'm fine. I'm very productive. I'm much more productive in at home than I ever was in
2: an office. The you amount can, of time that I used to waste that right? was like getting to and from the office, talking with people, right. you know, going on lunch breaks, like just, I don't even do any of that. You know? <laughs>
1: like, I mean, exactly. All those things that take us away and it's less, it's less stress, you know, but, but for me, any, I mean, that's what I've noticed. It's totally. Yeah. And so, but I mean, once the world rent, went remote, I mean, you were just perfectly poised to absorb. That demand. I, I would imagine. Did you get flooded? I mean, I'm just curious. Like, what
2: or was it? Did did, it I mean, or
1: you know, realize that's what they needed. I mean, it, it might have been a little. Well,
2: it's been like an amazing journey, but our, we had only just closed that seed round, so we hadn't built our tech platform at that time. So the uh, the stressor for me was like, oh wow, we got to go fast. Like I said, this is not a 10 year time horizon anymore. This is a happen <laughs> now. We're already there, and I wanted my product live and in market immediately, which is not possible. So, you know, I got to finding some a dev shop that could help us build it because I didn't even have a team yet. I didn't have a co-founder, a CTO, I didn't have anything. So, I outsourced the development to get moving on it, then started looking for a CTO, which I found Chris Turpak who joined me in August last year and he's unbelievable and then he took over the project, built our own in-house dev team and we kept going from there. We didn't end up getting the product live until April this year. So, that was a really Oh, yeah. Challenging time for me as a business owner, in that I've always been in service businesses where if you have the idea, you can literally start selling that service and delivering tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) Heck yeah. But building technology is a whole different thing. It's this Mm -hmm. big, long investment of time and energy and financial capital before you can go live. So it was really a big learning curve for me on that front. But, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, even just running our pre-launch campaign, there was so much interest around what we were doing. And we had over 5,000 people join with no marketing spend, just following along and wanting to be part of what we were doing. And, you know, we've just grown from success to success since launch and we're really focused on our ecosystem and a community-led growth approach and we embraced that and embodied that from day one and it's just paying off because there really is so many people that are just so, excuse me, excited and engaged by what we're doing and it's been the most amazing journey, Robin. Like this has been the best two years of my life and I say that with compassion for, you know, the challenge that a lot of people have faced. I personally, I just am just like aside from the illness that's that's existing, everything else is a chance to rethink how we've been doing things and to reset and to redefine humanity moving forward. So for me, it's just a big, wow, this is fun. This is exciting.
1: I hear that. I do. I really do. And so, you know, I would imagine there's excitement on both sides, right? Both on the, the hirer and the hirees. And I know you have an international pool of talent and say a little bit more about that, because I think that
2: that's that's super cool as well. You know, that you, you've got, you've got what, what, 13,000, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, We've got over 13,000 remote professionals registered. We have about 30,000 actually with their email addresses. So they're getting like, you know, notified of job openings and things, but 13,000 who already have profiles on the platform. So yeah, it's very, very exciting. And
1: I'm just thinking, like, so you have, yeah, you have. Oh,
2: the countries, the diversity. Yeah. And I'd love to hear, like, what do you see are some of the advantages of that for? Sorry, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, GrowMortly is designed to for any company anywhere in the world to hire any person anywhere in the world. So it's just breaking down all those previous borders to talent where we were hiring only locally. So as the professional, we had to find a company that we aligned with close to home and, and vice versa, building companies, we had to find these really amazing, passionate, excited, skilled, experienced people in our local area. We don't need to anymore. And that's what excites me is, you know, I always say in 2021, nobody has to work a job they hate anymore. Like whatever it is that you love doing, you can find the company out there that does that thing in a way that you like to show up with a bunch of great people that you'll thrive with, that's possible. And from a business owner perspective, You know, on the flip side, it's so exciting for me to be able to go out and go anywhere in the world, whoever's most passionate about doing what we do, come and be part of it. And I find the most loyal, excited, happy, thriving team. And this is what I'm just excited to bring to other small business owners because and entrepreneurs, because it is hard, you know, finding great talent and building a great team and being a great leader, it's not an easy thing. But I think remote work really unlocks a lot of exciting opportunities in that realm.
1: Yeah, and I mean, especially these days where there's a clear labor shortage. Yeah. Here in the U.S., it's incredible to have access to the world. Really, like there, there's so many talented people who would be so thrilled to be able to contribute. You know, in that Literally.
2: way. It's amazing. And the the diversity, like it takes diversity inclusion to a whole new level. I mean, really having a truly diverse team where you have people from all walks of life, from all different skin colors, from all different cultural backgrounds. You know, we were talking with the founder of Namal, which is an organization that upskills and preps refugees for remote work. And like, so we're partnering with that organization. And that is so exciting to me, like adding people into your organization that have that level of diversity, people with disabilities who tended yeah. to be very overlooked because of, you know, a physical obvious something when they walked into an interview or what have you. Oftentimes I mean, you can't see that. So it removes some of those biases, which gives opportunity then for people to show up and be like, yeah, just because maybe I'm in a wheelchair or I have, you know, some damage to one side of my body where it doesn't function as well or whatever it might be, like does not preclude me from showing up and being a valuable contribution and valuable part of this team. And the more diverse our teams can be, the more we are as an organization and a brand able to connect with our audience even though we talk about target marketing and all that, and that's really important to get your niche in, but diversity within a team breeds empathy and compassion and connection and understanding, and it's just invaluable. And what's so exciting about where we're at now is that small companies can have that level of diversity. An eight-person team can have eight people from eight different countries and like, wow, (laughs) that's really amazing. That was never possible before.
1: Oh no, no, I love that. I love that. And it really is so important. And as I understand it, the data is very clear, right? Diverse teams are higher performing and better for the bottom line than the mm-hmm. um, yes, team, team yep. So let me ask you this because I've uh I started out as a solopreneur. And in a way, like an author is kind of like a solopreneur, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like even if it's an author who's the CEO of a company their author business, they're probably a solopreneur. And it can be different, right? Even if you're used to managing a team inside of a company, having a, let's say, you know, an assistant to help you with some of those authory things that you have to do, you know, <laughs> following up and getting booked on a podcast or, you know, sending a copy of your book to somebody or mm-hmm. those things can take time away that you really don't have that, that, that you know, somebody. So, but maybe, I'm just curious, what do you find? Because I know it can be challenging figuring out like, how do you know how to, you're picking the right person or, you know, how do you know, what are some of the mistakes that
2: you see that people make in making hiring decisions? Mm, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see, and particularly with the solopreneur making their first hire is hiring a mini me versus somebody who has like opposing skills and complementary skills. So it's really can be like a blind spot where we see someone who's like a mini version of us, like, oh my gosh, they're up and coming. They like all the same things we do. They show up in the same way as us. This is going to be amazing. I need another version of me. I need to clone myself rather than going like, okay, right now I do all the things. These are the five things that I actually love doing and I'm stellar at. Here's the five things that I Effing hate doing, and like I would love someone else to do it and hire for that. And that way, you both get to live in your zone of genius. What happens when we hire the mini me is we're fighting for the thing, the good things that we want to do. (laughs) We both want to do the stuff, both want to do the same stuff. Yeah. We end up with a lot of conflict, often resentment because that person has also entered the dynamic looking up to you going, I want to be you. I want to be like you one day. So I'm coming with you because you're showing me what it could be. And that's not the career path that's on offer. Like that person needs to go out and find their own way to that. You know what I mean? Especially in when it's that first hire, what you're really looking for is someone totally different who can handle all the stuff that you're not necessarily good at. So that's like the most common mistake I see. Yeah, that
1: makes a lot of sense to me. Like, and it is. It's it's like a blind spot, right? Like you said. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about how you help companies find, and and you know, there's two questions here. This is a huge question, so we're gonna have to, because it's a short question, but it's big. How do you help companies find and retain the right talent? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, another thing. That first of all, finding the right talent in the first place, you're investing some time and money and effort there, but retaining the talent, you know, or making sure you got the right talent that you want to keep and then retaining it is huge because it's so expensive, right? To replace a person. It is more than finding one, you know. So talk a little bit about because I know you have a lot of mechanisms in place that support both the company and the employee. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's really quite devastating on a lot of levels when we make a mishire, when we hire someone who's not the right fit. And it does happen. And I think you know i offer that because we're not in our business journeys we're not going to get every single hire right even us as a you know with specialties in in culture matching and recruitment like i can't i'm not going to put on my website that we guarantee we'll get every 100% hire right it it happens right we aim to reduce that gap as much as physically possible but it's devastating from you know there's a financial impact because usually if it's the wrong person all of the time that you've been paying their salary they're not performing at the way at the rate that they would need to so there's that waste and then there's the downtime between finding the other people but there's also that emotional Eight. and energetic drain and that's what takes a really big toll a lot of the time it's what burns people we see a lot of trauma for leaders around not even wanting to now make another hire because they feel so devastated by the way this went down by how it didn't work out or whatever it might be. And I think it's just really important to acknowledge that, that that's a very real thing. You know, it's it's very hard, especially for smaller businesses. When you're making those first few hires, if they don't work out, it's just really emotionally and energetically draining, not to mention the financial impact. So just to keep your head up if that has happened to you and, and keep going, because we do get better at it over time. But what I would offer and, and how we help people and as a starting point is really focusing on culture, like understanding that, especially in 2021 and with millennials quickly representing the largest part of the workforce, this is not a nice to have anymore. Like it is a not negotiable. People want to work in a place that matches the way they want to show up every day. And they want to, and what that means is they will feel seen, valued heard as though they belong. And that's really what we all want as human beings. Now, culture is not, there is not this perfect culture and this is how we all need to be. What, Like I said, it comes down to where is the right place for me that matches how I am. And so I would really offer and what we aim to do through our technology and also some of the services we provide to businesses is to understand who your culture is as an organisation, really, and be able to own it and be comfortable with it and communicate it clearly to your audience. So Grow has, when you set up your company, you put in your values, your vision, your mission, and that gets communicated out to people who are looking to work for you. And I really think that values are kind of our culture statements. Like that's the way, there's the what we care about and why we're doing it, which is really important, but the values talk to like, how do we show up for each other as a team and for our customers and for the world every single day? And a really easy example is, are we rigid or flexible in our approach? Neither is right or wrong, but we tend to be one or the other. Now, if we say we're really flexible, but oh, we're not. What you're talking about. <laughs> and if I will keep going. <laughs> yeah. If we say we're really flexible and we're not, we're going to attract all these people who love to, you know, work in a more flexible, fluid way and they're going to feel constrained and trapped by the rigidity and structure that somebody who likes that environment will absolutely crush it and thrive in. So this is the key thing, I believe. In the All first right. I step. have
1: to ask you about this. because
2: <laughs> I'm, Now it's time for Robin therapy. <laughs> I love it.
1: I, I would say I'm both right. Because I'm rigid in that. Like I have a really high standard mm-hmm. of excellence because we have to be excellent with, mm-hmm. you know, we produce because of what we, of the work that we do. Of course. Yeah. But I tend to be, I've even been it's been noted by my team that I, I maybe am a little too flexible when it comes to things like, you know, how do you want that done? Or when do you need that? <laughs> you know, and I can be very hand wavy, right? <laughs> so am I just maddening and no one would ever want to work for me or, you know, besides my amazing people I have now? Or I mean, is this is this a common thing where you see
2: like sort of a, a blend or how yeah, would you, you consider flexible I or rigid based on that? I think it's common for some of these paradoxes to exist, but I think it's like, how can we go in a little deeper and understand what it is? And very quickly without diving in with you, what it sounds to me like is what's most important is that we deliver things to a really high standard. I would pick that over you meeting the deadline. Yeah. Right. So the flexibility is coming around like deadlines and that sort of thing. It sounds like you're less attached there and maybe even to like where people work from. Like, I don't mind, I oh, don't know. Yeah. I'm guessing, right? Exactly. Like, so oh, there's yeah. flexibility around like <laughs> how you do things and even when they are d- get done within reason, maybe like right. we have more well, flexibility. Certain things, yeah. Certain yeah. things, the deadlines are non-negotiable, but other things it's like,
0: yeah,
1: Wednesday, Friday, what works for you?
2: <laughs> exactly. And maybe like flexibility when... If there is something unforeseeable, like it's okay, but what's most important is this very high standard, right? So understanding that both of those can exist as values and they're not necessarily diametrically opposing provided we... And I like value statements because they help to kind of distinguish that. But, you know, a more rigid company might be like on time, every time and following a process, which means... Like there is no room for us to ever be late on anything. And even if we don't get it done to the best quality, like as long as it's on time, whereas that's not how you're operating. You're saying, well, number one is we want a high standard. Like that is we go above and beyond in terms of our quality and our standard. We aim to meet deadlines, of course, and we have room for some flexibility in like how we get things done and where we get them from. So, you know, really diving into things, is helpful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that because I think it helps, at least it helps me and I hope it helps our listeners and, you know, really understand what you're talking about with that, that dynamic between
2: rigidity and flexibility. Yeah. And I mean, we are very flexible in our organization as an example, but it, we do have a lot of systems and processes. Not to say we don't, but if mm-hmm. someone was coming out of the military where they really thrived in the layers and the hierarchy and the this is what's next, follow the bouncing ball, probably would hate grow remotely because we have low levels of hierarchy and we have. While we have systems and processes, you know, it's a lot more fluid and it's a lot more ever evolving. They're constantly changing. We're not super attached to them. So, you know, that would be an example of something there. Do you know what I mean? I do. Absolutely. I'd love to have you speak to, because
1: this is something that I think every solopreneur gets over at some point or they go out of business, (laughs) which is this idea of, I can't afford to hire someone.
2: Yeah. You can't afford not to. (laughs) I mean, a couple of reasons, one burnout. I mean, ultimately you will burn out Two, real. And this would be the next step. Like we were talking once you've kind of looked at, well, what is our culture? And if you're a solopreneur, the culture is you like, what is my, what are my values and how do I want to show up and how do I expect people? Because if you don't communicate that, you're just going to have a whole lot of challenges which will seem like personal conflict but they're not you know necessarily but the next thing to do is really look at what are the things that I really don't like doing that I'm not necessarily very good at and what are the things I thrive at and knowing and there is a point where you're taking that leap of faith to make that investment in someone so that if you can do more of what you're really really good at and they can crush the stuff that you're not like you are going to see exponential results if you do it if you were honest with yourself about those things and you hire that person who can thrive in that environment, you are now going to be able to do so much more of what you excel at mm-hmm. and that will pay off. And there may be a short-term pain there and a little bit of a like growth. I always look at it like, okay, we have this like slight dip in the curve, in the quality, in the whatever before, or the, the financial bank balance, whatever it is. And then we go again and then we grow again. And it's this constant, like, a little yeah. bit of a dip down. I'm doing my hand. So if you're not watching, oh, yeah, video, I, mean, you, <laughs> I think they will get it.
1: Have you ever read the book mastery? And I'm going to totally tank the fellow who wrote its name. because He has a very long name, but anyway, the wonderful little book called mastery. And he writes about how this is, this is actually how we develop mastery in anything, whether it's mm-hmm. sports, music, running a business, growing a business. And it's true. There's like a plateau period. And then you have a little dip and then right before you, and then you shoot up and then you have another plateau period. And I remember reading the book years ago and sort of relating it more to music or sports or some of the other things I'd done before I'd really had a business, but then it's really like, anything yeah, in a business, you know, cause when you dip, it can be scary
2: when you have a business. It is scary. And going from being a solo entrepreneur where you're doing everything yourself you are your own benchmark. You probably are pretty good at doing most of it and keeping it together at some degree. So when you first hire that person, even the things that you're not as good at, there's a chance that the first few weeks, they're not going to be that good at it. And you're going to get scared and you're going to think, Oh my God, they're not doing it as good as I am. Like, Oh, what are we going to do? But like, just give them a minute, just back off, just relax. You also need to pull yourself out of it and get comfortable now focusing on, on what you need to focus on and let them grow and thrive and learn. Then all of a sudden you'll see they're better at it than you because they only have to do that stuff all day. Whereas you were doing you know everything and now you get to be better at whatever it is that you love. So, I mean, just to go full circle to the start of the conversation, like as an author, when we publish a book essentially, yeah, we have to do marketing. We might have to do sales. Even when we have a publisher who's actively involved in that stuff, we're not completely precluded from it. You know, there's logistics and like you said, sending things out and operations and all that stuff, marketing of self personal brand. And I think sitting down and saying like, what are the parts of this that I love? Because some of it you probably really do love. And then what are the parts of it that I don't love? And then figuring out who you could hire to support you with the things that you don't love as much.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it's also the things only you can do. Like if you're yeah. an author and somebody wants to talk to you about your book, you can't send your assistant. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. You've got to be there and do that front facing stuff. Mm-hmm. But let's talk a little bit more about letting go, because I think that that is, I know that's something that I'm constantly having to work with, with myself on, right. Is letting
2: go and trusting.
1: So yeah. Was that ever easy for you or or
2: was that something you had to learn or? No, and I feel like I continue to learn it. I think one thing to note on this is how sneaky our ego is. And our ego likes to be validated in its existence by the things that it knows how to do well. And one of the ways it validates it is to tell us the story that no one else can do it. No one else can do it as well as us. People aren't doing it as well as us. They're not doing it fast enough. We could just do it better ourselves. So just knowing that the things that we don't want to let go of and don't delegate are often things that sit in our zone of excellence, which we're very good at them, but they're not our zone of genius. So when we are operating in our zone of genius, we are risking everything because if we mess it up, That is like the fire that lights our soul. It is our reason for being. So there is so much more risk for us as beings to be operating more often in the zone of genius. When we operate in our zone of excellence, we don't care about these things, but we're good at them. And so it gives us a lot of validation to just be like, look at me crushing this thing that I don't really care about, but I'm not putting myself out on my limb doing the thing that I'm absolutely like. I truly exist as a human for this thing. So if it doesn't go right, I am like obliterated.
1: (laughs) I am just like totally fascinated by what you're saying because I've never heard it put that way before, but I can really see what you're saying. It's like, so the zone of genius isn't necessarily the zone where you feel the most competent
2: is what I'm hearing you say. Or I would use the word comfortable. So. Okay, yeah, so, so you're probably. I,
1: I want to picture this. I, I got the zone of excellence because I love yeah. a
2: lot. There's a lot of things I, we're really good at that we can just, and we feel really comfortable in that space. Like, I'm really good at spreadsheets and bookkeeping, honestly. Like, I taught myself that <laughs> stuff and I'm really good at it. Like, <laughs> am I, though, changing the world by <laughs> doing that? No. <laughs> like, this here, this is my zone of genius. Like, communicating, whether it's yeah. written, video, podcast, whatever, that is absolutely one of my zones of genius. I have an obsession with words. I have an obsession with psychology and growth and expansion. And my existence as a human is to inspire possibility. So this is how I do it. This is one of the ways I do it, not in spreadsheets. I could probably make a cool spreadsheet and be like, Hey, look what's possible. But like, that's not, but I'm excellent (laughs) at it. I'm excellent at it. And it's a lot less risky because if I come on your podcast and I don't inspire possibility, I have risked the very reason for my existence. Mm. Mm. And so my ego is afraid of that. This is the deeper layer. Like there's the behavior and the habit and all of that stuff that we need to change. But, you know, this is the deeper layer. And yeah, our zone of genius is the thing that we're in complete flow state. Sometimes we feel like we're channeling. It's the thing that you know it's not to say there aren't other people that can do it of course there's lots of people that do lots of things similar but this is the thing that it matters if we don't do it you know mm-hmm. it matters if we don't because that's what we're here for
1: yeah i think that mine is helping people come up with that you know clear saleable concept for their book like right like where does their genius meet the marketplace and helping them to frame it in a way mm-hmm. that, that Agents and publishers can appreciate it, and see it, and buy it. And I am so attached to that outcome
2: <laughs> that I take it. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I, it's your gift to humanity. I mean, that's I what your genius.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's no room for failure.
2: There. Yeah, you
1: know, it's very and, and it really is. Yeah, it really is. Like, even thinking about failing, I just I'm like, no, no, we'll mm-hmm. just keep going. We get it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and thinking of like where people are at when they are on the solopreneur journey it's like yeah they're doing some of their zone of genius and they're doing a whole lot of other stuff but to let go of the other stuff means I'm going to show up in my zone of genius like maybe 80 70 80 percent of my day and that starts to be scary because you know there's a lot more on the line
1: yeah on the other hand it sounds really appealing right to it is be able to live in your zone of genius and not
2: be bogged down by things you're good at but that suck your energy. But I love to talk about this because it's the deeper reason why we're bad at delegating. You know, it's not, it's because it's validating us to do the things that we think we're good at. And it it takes courage to just say, yeah, I'm good at it, but I'm going to show someone else. And it does, there's some level of, you know, it's, it's partly annoying to delegate. You have to like teach someone and we can create all these excuses of why we don't do it because it's faster to do it ourselves and all that. But the deeper reason is that, you know, it means we're going to step more into our gift and there's more risk there. Yeah, very interesting. And
1: I think too, like, I guess there is that thing, right? Because this is, this is something that I wrestle with too, because, you know, I have a team of excellent people. They all tell me though, it's like the concept, they're just like, please just do the concept. <laughs> please don't make sense. <laughs> But and there is that it's validating, but you know, but I also know like there's like my brain is going, I'm stumbling because my I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. But it's like I notice I feel like, on some level rationally, I'm saying, well, obviously I could train someone to do this, right? Mm-hmm. As well, or maybe if not as well, almost as well. Mm-hmm. But but it still feels like it's my zone of genius. Well, and it can be as that little bit of edge that maybe isn't teachable. It's something about my whole worldview. I don't know. I like, say more about that because I'm curious about to get your perspective on that.
2: Well I think it's a slightly different conversation because what you're talking about is scaling your genius within your business, yeah. which is different to some degree. I mean all delegation oh, okay. is we're, part yeah, of solopreneur now. Now we're Yeah, into- yeah. So okay. the first step is Delegating things that I don't want to do, so that I can do more of what I do. And now, what you're talking about is okay. Now that we've got like a business built around us, and I'm doing the thing that I'm really good at and I love, like, do I want to scale this out so that other people can do it? And so, what are you letting go of if you train someone else to do it? Are you really letting go of anything, or are you just adding to?
1: I feel like I'm adding to. I guess what's reflected back to me, though, is that they still want me to help them with that piece. Yeah. Mm. But they're new. I've been doing it for 20 years. They've been doing it for one or two or three. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And this is where you're
2: playing the role of like mentor and, and master so that people can learn and fine tune and become as good as you are. But I think it's also cool to look within teams of like, are we bringing people up because that's what they want? Or are we seeing opportunity for them that they're not necessarily wanting to even step into? And I'm not saying that's the case with you, but it is something to consider. And like, sometimes I've done this in the past where I'll see, I'll have like team members and I'll think, oh, they could be this, they could do that. And I start kind of pushing them in that direction. And maybe the better thing to do is just start fresh and hire someone into that thing that I (laughs) need or see for the business. That can be sometimes there yeah. as well. And I think also like, I mean, do you think, cause in my experience,
1: like I'm still doing things that are in my zone of excellence that I would rather not do, but I'm also doing my zone of genius and I have a team. So it's like, do you think that you have to really get stuff offloaded before you start teaching yours from your zone of genius? Or do you think it like can all happen at once? Like I'm just, I'm just, or it probably could be any combination,
2: but I guess yeah, just, i
1: think you know, we're
2: we're doing a bit of both. It's just your life will be more enjoyable. The more time you get to spend in your zone of genius.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, and I think that that is really, it is such a quality of life issue, you know, such a quality of life thing to have people that you can count on to help you with these things. You know, like there's not much that's less interesting to me than putting a book in an envelope and getting it to the post office. Very Mm -hmm. few. (laughs)
2: But I used to do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Exactly. What would you say would be, what is your best advice for someone who's thinking about bringing someone on to really, because, you know, when I think about authors, like, this is the author's corner. When I think about authors, it's like, if you want to up your book sales or if you want to be able to get more out of your book, even if it's, you know, booking, uh, teaching workshops at a corporation with your book and, you know, just having them buy books or whatever it is, but to have someone on your team to help facilitate that, there's so many little pieces to that, Yeah. right? When I launch an email campaign, it's, it takes five people. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God I have those people, you know? So, because different talents, different skill sets. And so it really can make such a huge difference in an author's ability to get things done so that they can be more successful both with their book and with their business or mission or whatever it is that they're using the book to help grow. So if you could give one piece of advice, I know this isn't fair, you know, to somebody who's thinking about making this kind of a move, what would be that advice or what would you say is the most important thing for somebody to consider as before they make that move? Maybe that's a better question.
2: I mean, like we talked about, like figuring out what it is that you want to do and you would like someone else to do. But if we think of the case of an author, I mean, broadly speaking, you probably want to hire someone who is like an a higher high-level operational assistant or assistant who has skills within the marketing realm mm. and probably could be like less... On the super operational realm, if that makes sense. So, we're still looking for someone who's organized, efficient, and enjoys doing systems and processes. But there's not like as much logistics of a book of an author's business, so to speak, as I don't know, like an e commerce company where they're shipping millions of things out all the time and managing suppliers. And, you know, you have one probably channel where you're ordering the book from, and then they do have to be sent out and things like that. But there's probably a little bit less on that side. But in terms of understanding marketing technology and being able to support some of that side of thing, I think would be quite helpful. And I would, before you make your first hire, there's a bunch of things that, all of those things that you've most likely been doing, or if you're ahead of the game and, and you're hiring before you get into it, that's a different story. But if, if these are things that you have been doing, start to create a little bit of a just checklist and a few like items, notes around the different tasks. It doesn't have to be comprehensive. Like building out training programs and onboarding programs can obviously be as long as a piece of string, but just having a few things for when they start one i mean you need to create a job description that actually advertises what the person's going to be doing so just keeping track keeping track for a week or two of of what these tasks are as you're doing them and having them fall into the job description advertising for the role and then when they start just kind of going back to that list and being like all right well here's kind of how I do this thing and here's how I do that thing. And it doesn't have to be comprehensive. Don't overwhelm yourself. Like you're hiring someone with these skills. So they're going to be able to come in and learn, but you will feel more comfortable having a framework of like, these are the 10 main things that I'm kind of going to hand over to you. And let's just go through them one by one and come back and ask me as many questions as you want. I always encourage my new team members, like ask as many questions as you want. I do not expect you to remember any of this. You are still trying to understand me. You're still trying to understand the company, let alone this one thing. And I'd rather you bombard us with questions in the first, you know, few weeks or months and know that longer term we're good to go. And I think that's the thing as well, not expecting someone to come in and just be able to hit the ground running with no input. Like people still, as I said, need to learn you and the business and the culture, even if they have that background that they're going to bring and enhance, they still have a learning curve for sure. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Great. Really great. All right, Sarah. I think we've covered a lot of great ground here. So I'm going to go (laughs) to my my favorite final question, which is what didn't I ask you that I should have?
2: Oh gosh. (laughs) That's such a on the spot question. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We could talk about, oh, we could talk about my own book. Mm. my process. Yeah, let's do. It's a fun story. So I wrote a book at the start of the pandemic, actually called Conscious Leadership that was released this year. And basically I was here in Austin, which is where I live now. Having just met my now husband, we decided to lock down together. We thought it would be fun after our first date. And now we're married and have a baby. Wow. In those first couple of of months, he was in the process of starting a new business and we would go for walks and I would just share stories of my leadership and business journey with him. And one day he said to me, well, why don't you write all of this down? These are such great stories. Like people could learn from this. And I was like, ah, oh, I suppose so. Then I thought, well, I could make a little ebook or something like a downloadable thing for remotely to attract leads and just share some of who I am. So I started writing and he helped me brainstorm. Like these are the stories that you've told me that were really powerful. And I wrote a whole list and kind of created a chapter framework, which is how I've written, I've published two books and I've written Probably five that the other three are sort of half finished or what have you. But I tend to start with like a concept of what this book is, and then I create the chapters and then I just sort of pump through it. That seems to be how I write. Um, So I brainstormed all these chapters and then just started writing. And as it came out of me, I realized like, oh, this is a little bit more than an ebook. Like this is, (laughs) I think it ended up being 26,000 words, which is not huge, but it's, you know, more than what I thought like a five page, you know, downloadable book or something. It was a bit more than that. And And so I thought, well, maybe I should think about publishing this. And Joe was working with a book coach at the time on a book he's working with. And so he arranged for me to have a meeting with him and I sent the manuscript across And when we got on the call, he said, first thing he said was, well, we would love to publish your book. And I was like, oh, like that wasn't even what the meeting was about. So that was like very (laughs) wonderful experience for me and definitely worth celebrating. But yeah, that was my experience writing conscious leadership. And it was amazing.
1: Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I think we need more conscious leadership in the world for sure. So yeah,
2: (laughs) thanks for letting me talk about it. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. And Sarah, thank you so much for sharing all your insights and wisdom. And I know I learned some things that I think will help make me a better leader. So I hope that our listeners can say the same. I'm sure that they will.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for having me, Robin. Such a good conversation. I love talking about this stuff. Thanks again for being here.